Well, good morning. Is everybody over your turkey coma? <laughs> Welcome. What a beautiful Lord's Day it is after a night of rain. Glad to see each and every one of you out today. Uh, if you're joining us by live stream, we want to welcome you as well. And if you're joining us for the first time today, I know we got a few of you um, that have come in, and we're just so glad you're here. We want to let you know that uh, we're thankful for your presence here today, and that here at East LJ, we have been captivated by Christ. In Him, we have seen the beauty of our God. We've seen God's glory, the Scripture tells us, in the face of Jesus Christ. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we've come to know the grace of God by which we're saved, and He has captivated us with His love. We hope you'll see His beauty. hope you'll understand His grace and His mercy and His love to you today and be captivated by Him as well. I want to give a thank you to all of our local missions team. Uh, they, as you have been hearing the announcements and will continue to hear, they're helping us connect during this holiday season uh, and be able to minister to and serve uh, those who are in need in various ways uh, throughout our community. So thank you. Uh, to our local missions team. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? <clears throat> our text for this morning, part of, part of the text, will be Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And there, in a conversation with her mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And then the most important statement, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. As we're going to see this morning, even though Ruth and Naomi's situation was pretty hopeless from a human perspective... Those two ladies, under the surface of their pain, were hoping in the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means the coming, and Advent is for us as believers. It's for those who believe that Christ came into the world and that He's coming again. Is there anybody in the house that believed Christ came and that He's coming again? Amen. Amen. He is. And so the, there are four Sundays in Advent, and each week a candle is lit to symbolize the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth to, that first Christmas to bring hope, peace, joy, and love. And each of the four candles represent one of those things that Jesus came to bring us. Those gifts, hope, peace, joy, and love, the gifts that our world needs the most. And they're gifts that only God can give us. Amen? And he did through his son, Jesus. And so this morning, we light the first candle of Advent, which is the hope candle. And we will be talking about hope. And we're going to be doing it this, this, this uh, Advent season through the book of Ruth. So... Uh, We'll see how that goes. We'll see if we can make sense out of uh, Advent in Ruth. Aren't you thankful, though, that you have hope in Christ? Amen. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us the new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We serve a risen Savior and because He lives. That changes everything. Because He lives, we can have hope no matter what. And so we do. I'm so thankful for that hope. And yet, you probably just spent some time with family members that don't have that hope over the Thanksgiving holiday. You may have coworkers that you'll see after a little bit of a break tomorrow morning that don't have that hope in Christ. You may have neighbors. Uh, so we want to pray for your witness, our witness to our neighbors. We also want to pray for the nations. This, this morning, we want to pray for the Turkmen of Turkmenistan. This is a Muslim people group of 4.8 million people, among whom there are no known believers. And so uh, almost an entire nation there unreached for Jesus. And so we pray for them. And, and we're going to join our hearts together now as we pray um, and also pray for a number of families and folks who, uh, families who are grieving and folks who need God's healing. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that today we serve a risen Savior who is the Son of the living God, who is the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. And Lord God, you are the God of Israel. You're the same God in whom Ruth and Naomi put their faith. God, how we praise you for the hope that is to be had in a living Savior that we enjoy day to day in you. And Father, we pray today for our neighbors, whether that be family or co-workers, whoever that may be in our lives. God, we pray for them, that you would open their hearts, and we pray for ourselves, that you would make us bold witnesses to speak of hope, even this week, in Christ. Lord, for the Turkmen in Turkmenistan, we pray, God, that you would open their hearts to the gospel, you'd prepare their hearts in advance, and that you would send those with the truth of Christ into their midst, and that the gospel would move in a powerful way there in that country. Lord, today we lift up several who are grieving. We pray for the family of Lois Davis. Lord, we pray for the family of Donald Sams. Uh, we pray for the family of Bertha Gentry and the family of Judy Godowns. We ask God for your comfort. You are the God of all comfort. We pray, God, that you would comfort each and every one of these. And in the midst of these situations, Lord, may they know your hope, and may those in those families who, who don't trust Christ, may they come to hope in him, even during these days of grief. Lord, we continue to pray for Judy Williams and Ray Thompson, for Vicki White and Lana Weberg, for Larry Colson and Sophia Deerwent, for Nancy Mosher and Jose Manuel and Carol Davis, Sam Port. Thank you that Russ Adamson's back with us today. We pray for Denise Key and Ed Schroeder, Scotty Sanford and John Hardiman and Jamie Dotson. Lord, we lift up Trey's uncle Wes Paramore and Sheila Arnold. God, there are others that you know are on the hearts of some of us here. I thank you that you know their names and you see their situations. You are with them. We pray, God, that you administer to them and use us to serve and encourage each and every one that we have the opportunity to do so. Lord, praise you today for this time, this opportunity. And God, we know that it is not 
by accident because there's no such thing. God, it's sovereign appointment that we're all in this room. And so I pray, God, that in this hour you would speak as only you can. You would meet us where we are. You would speak into our lives in the way that we need to hear from you. And that we would be changed. That we might leave this place more deeply dependent on Christ. And Lord, that we would leave this place um, more ready to spread your word with those all around us. Thank you, Father, for this time. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain standing as we worship in song. We're glad you joined us this morning. On this uh, first Sunday of Advent, we're going to sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus.
Father, I thank you that that invitation, the invitation of the song we just sang is your call to us. And truly, Father, none of us are faithful. Many of us are broken. Some today are bitter. Some are worn out emotionally. Some because of circumstances perhaps, 
maybe their own choices have dried up spiritually. Some are flat out desperate. And God, they're in this moment knowing they need you. And I pray, God, that you would meet us today. Thank you that your arms are open, that you welcome us all, no matter where we find ourselves today, to come and receive from you what only you can give, salvation and grace and mercy and help and strength and peace and joy, all because your heart, unprovoked by us and in spite of all of our unloveliness and sin, is full of love and tender mercy towards us. I thank you that you're at work in our lives even when you don't see it. Even when it's the last thing we can feel. And I praise you for how we see that from your word in the book of Ruth. And God, I pray that you would enlighten our understanding by your spirit of your word as we open it together now. We thank you, Father, that Christ was born, that he lived a perfect life in our place, went to the cross and died for us, and on the third day rose from the dead in victory that Christ today lives, that as he came once, he will come again, but this time in victory and celebration and to take his people home as well as judge a world who refused to trust him, to answer his plea and his call to them, and to bow the knee to his lordship. As we thank you for your first coming, may we be ready for your second coming. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ruth. It's going to be near the front. That's not a place you frequent very often. It's near the front. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. So find the book of Ruth. We'll be dismissed to children's churches. You're making your way to Ruth chapter 1. Charles Spurgeon said, The star of hope is still in the sky when the night is blackest. I want you to get that image in your head. The star of hope is still in the sky when the night is blackest. We're going to spend this Advent season in a dark moment in Israel's history with an ordinary widow who is suffering great tragedy and despair, she is in the blackest of nights. But in the midst of her darkness, we're going to see by the end of this four-week period, the star of hope is shining, and it's shining brightly even there in her darkness. 
we all know the Christmas story, but the story of Ruth that we'll be considering together over the next few weeks, it's the story behind the Christmas story. We're going to get to the Christmas story on Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock Christmas Eve, right here, and on Christmas Day, no Sunday school, 1030, right here, one service. But do you know the story behind the Christmas story? My hope is that this story will make our enjoyment of the Christmas story all the richer this year. Sometime in the next few weeks, you'll, you'll likely hear these words. You've heard them many, many times before. You could, you could probably stand up and recite everything after I quit reciting. But you've heard these words, have you not? "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a what? And you could go right on, couldn't you? And all the way through. Today and for the next three weeks, we're going to consider a story that begins like this, "'Twas a thousand years before Christmas.'" was a thousand years before Christmas, we're going to be spending Advent in the book of Ruth. And here is the, the big picture of the whole series. A thousand years before Christmas, God was working in the history of one widow's despair to establish the family tree through which he would send the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, my plan until I got here today, and so it's not going to be on the screen, was to leave you hanging about what I meant about a family tree. But I decided in the, in the moments as we were singing that some of you may not be here uh, again next Sunday. You may just be here because it's the holiday weekend. So, so that presents a problem because you're going to go out here completely confused. Uh, everybody that's here for, for the four weeks would get it by the end. So I've got to kind of spoiler alert. So if you don't want to know the spoiler here, then you know just close your ears or something and hang around for the next three weeks. Otherwise, look in your Bibles at Ruth chapter 4. What do I mean when I say that God was working in the history of one widow's despair to establish a family tree through which he would send Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 21 and 22, the end of the book. So we're fast-forwarding to the end. Don't do this when you read books. That's a sorry way to read a book. Start at the beginning and just ease through. Get the full effect. That's what I was going to do with you guys. But here we are. Ruth 4, verse 21. It's a genealogy. It begins in verse 18. We're not going to go through all of it. Beginning in verse 21, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. All I want to tell you is that Ruth, of whom we'll be talking about for the next three weeks, ended up marrying Boaz. And they had a child named Obed. Notice it. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and there we have, in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you'll skip down to verse 5, you will find there a very similar genealogy as to what we read in Ruth 4, verse 22. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab... And Boaz, the father of Obed, by who? Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. If you've been around church any time at all, you know that Jesus came from whose line? 
He came from the line of David. And if you skip all the way down to verse 16, you read, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And in verse 17, it says, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to, to, to the Christ, 14 generations. In short, from Obed, the child of Ruth and Boaz, to Jesus was about 30 pregnancies. God, a thousand years before Christmas was working in the history of one widow's despair to establish the family tree through which he would send the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, it's going to take four weeks to get the fullness of that. So I'm going to say about that, you got the punchline, okay? It'll take four weeks for us to see everything I want you to see. So stay with me, be patient as we work our way through the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is only one of two books in the Bible named after a woman, the other being Esther. But the book of Ruth is the only Old Testament book named after a Gentile woman. This part one in our series, Twas a Thousand Years Before Christmas, we're going to consider Ruth one, and here is the title of today's message, The Light of Hope Amid the Darkness of Despair. That's what we find in Ruth chapter one. In Ruth chapter one, we see God sovereignly shining the light of hope in his faithful love while we're in the midst of the darkness of despair. That's what God does. Well, the darkness of despair is seen right off the bat here in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to begin to read through the chapter, and we're going to read a little bit and talk a little bit, and read a little bit and talk a little bit. It'll be, be a little different. There's no points to this sermon except one or two uh, big points. So here we go. Ruth 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites, Ephrathites, something like that. They were Smites from Bethlehem in Judah. Second time Bethlehem has been mentioned. Note that. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman, that is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Verse 1 says, in the days of the judge, when the judges ruled, Ruth follows judges in our Bibles. But what I want you to understand is that Ruth is pulled right out of the middle of the book of Judges. If you were to go back and read the entirety of Judges, it's somewhere in the midst of that mess that Ruth's story happens. The very last verse of Judges sums up the entire book. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what was Ruth's world like? What was the world like for Israel, in Israel, when 
the judges were ruling, it was a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. For 410 years, Israel was doing what they wanted, when they wanted, with whom they wanted. Oh, they'd get real low and cry out to God when trouble came, when it got bad enough. You know how we do. You know how we do. That's how they did. And, and then God in their situation would raise up a judge to rule. And, and he'd kind of get things back on track. And, and things would be good till he died. But before long, he'd die. And the people would go right back to doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, with whomever they wanted. Man, that sounds a whole lot like America today, doesn't it? You can relate to that world, can't you? And it's somewhere in the middle of this time period, it's, it's in the middle of this kind of sin and idolatry from which the story of the book of Ruth is lifted. The story of one ordinary family in the book of Ruth is highlighted to show God's faithfulness to keep his word as we see him working to establish the family tree of Messiah to come. It was Israel's idolatry and sin that had provoked God's discipline in the form of the famine that originally drove Elimelech to leave Bethlehem. Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. By the time the book of Ruth begins and the story of Elimelech and Naomi begins, the house of bread had no bread. And so Elimelech and his family have to go somewhere else to find food. And of all the places, of all the places they could have gone, Elimelech chooses Moab, a hated enemy of Israel. Just to tell you the kind of nation Moab was, let me tell you how they started. If you were to go back and read in Genesis 19, and this is, in the, this is straight out of the Bible now, Genesis 19 records the story of the incestuous relationship that Lot's two daughters had with their father. And the oldest one slept with, his, with her father first, and out of that incestuous union, she birthed Moab and all of his descendants. The second, one, second daughter went in and slept with her dad, did the same thing, and out of it, that came the Ammonites, both of which ended up being arch enemies, hated enemies of the nation of Israel. But the women of Moab became known for their sexual immorality, for their idolatry, and how they would use their sexuality to, to entice and seduce the men of Israel to take them into idolatry. In fact, on one occasion in Numbers 25, the Bible says God struck down with a plague 24,000 Israelite men. Because, the text says in verse 1 of that chapter, they played the harlot with the women of Moab. Moab was a shameful place. But that's where Elimelech and Naomi take their two boys and go to live. Things had to be really bad in Bethlehem for Elimelech to take his family to Moab. And even then, it was a questionable decision, wasn't it? 
Scripture doesn't make a big pronouncement about the sinfulness of that decision, but it certainly seems like he took them into just the pit of idolatry and immorality and sin. After some time, as we read in the text, Elimelech dies. Not told how, not told how old he was or any of that. But he leaves Naomi a widow with her two sons. Her two sons then take Moabite wives. They're in Moab. There's, no, there's nobody else around but Moabites. And so they marry two Moabite women. So here you are. You're Naomi. Your husband's died. You're in a pagan land. Your two sons marry Moabites. Life's not going the way Naomi planned. Malon and Kilion marry these two Moabite wives. We're given both of their names, Orpah and Ruth. And then, to add insult to injury, both of her sons die. So there Naomi is, her husband's dead, her boys are dead. And she's left alone with only her two Moabite daughters-in-law. After five short... Did you catch that? We only read five verses of the chapter so far. After five short verses, we find Naomi in the most desperate of situations for a woman in that day. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law have no one but each other. They're alone. They're poor. They're desperate. They have no one to provide for them. They would have been among, at that point, the poorest of the poor in any part of the world at that time. Some have called Naomi the female Job of the Old Testament. You know, Job lost all he had. God took away everything but his own life, and Naomi's in that same boat. She's lost everything. Plus, unlike Job, she's a woman, and so she has little hope of being able to provide for herself in that world. I wonder this morning, maybe you're feeling at least somewhat like Naomi. Circumstances are different. Details are different. But your life's not where you would have ever thought it would be at this point. You feel hopeless. Circumstances are dark. You've suffered a loss or tragedy. Maybe you've gotten some terrible news. Your financial situation is bleak. Your family's a mess. Naomi understood and felt and experienced the darkness of despair. Pick the story up in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. So she's deciding to leave Moab. Why? For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Back to Bethlehem they go. Back to Bethlehem. Why? Because 
suddenly there's bread once again in the house of bread. Seems that Naomi here, even though she's hurting, she's despairing, she's lost everything, it, it seems that she's still holding fast to her faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, because the Lord in these verses is credited with the return of food to Bethlehem, the Lord. She heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. There's still the acknowledgement that all provision comes from him, and so it is here. And in those statements, there is a glimmer of light in the darkness. There's a glimmer of hope in the midst of her despair. There is always a glimmer of hope in our darkness. Because our God and Savior lives and reigns today, and He is the God of hope. He is, Joe, as we sing, uh, just uh, not, not, not often enough in my opinion, He is our living hope. So there is always hope in the darkness of our despair. There's always light shining, even just if it's just a glimmer. You see, God sovereignly shines the light of hope and His faithful love while we're in the midst of the darkness of despair. So Naomi now can go home and not starve to death. And so she heads that way. Her and Orpah and Ruth leave Moab and begin the journey back to Bethlehem. It wouldn't be easy for a widow without any heirs, without a husband, without any sons in Bethlehem, where they were going back to. But, but know this, it would be better there, and, and she'd have a better chance of somebody having mercy on her there, and she just might find a kinsman redeemer. That is a male relative who can intervene and restore her husband's line and provide for her. More about that next week. And so she heads back to Bethlehem because it won't be good, but it'll be better than it was in Moab. So these three ladies start the journey. We don't know how far they got, but somewhere along the way, Naomi stops. And she tells her two daughters-in-law to go home. It's kind of weird. She welcomed them to join her. They start the journey. She stops and says, no, girls, y'all need to go home. Perhaps she felt like she was being selfish and it, and it bothered her as they were departing the country. Verse 8 picks the story up and says, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, the dead being father-in-law and their husbands. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait? therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Orpah and Ruth really love their mother-in-law. What a beautiful story. They had left their homes 
They left their mother's houses. Perhaps they just lived across town from mom and them when they were married to Malon and Kilion. All of a sudden, they're leaving town. But Naomi keeps pleading with them to go home. No, we're going to go with you. At first blush, you might think, well, maybe they were just being nice, and perhaps one of them was because we are told that finally Orpah does go back. Text continues, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. That was a goodbye kiss. She loved her. She had been willing to go, but after extended pleading with her to go home, Orpah indeed went home, but the verse continues, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Ruth wasn't just being nice. This is the same word, this word clung. This, word, this is the same word, Hebrew word as in Genesis 2.24. There in the beginning, at the, uh, 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 there at the first marriage, if you will, of Adam and Eve, the word is translated whole fast. Some of your translations have it, have it translated cleave. That's the, the leave and cleave verse. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's a deep devotion of the heart. And Ruth here is said to cleave to Naomi. Not in some romantic way, but in a way of committed devotion and love. But Naomi keeps on and she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Don't forget that part. Naomi is saying to Ruth, Ruth, it's okay, honey. It's really okay. Orpah went back. I still love Orpah. You can go home. I'm going to be fine. Ruth's response is one of the most beautiful expressions of commitment ever recorded in human literature. Her words have been used in wedding vows for years. But it's even more amazing and maybe amusing because this one young woman, Ruth, speaks such words to her mother-in-law. Hello? <laughs> Not something you hear that often, right? Here's her words, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. What a commitment. What devotion. That's what clinging to looks like. By the way, it's a good thing that these words, though not exactly the same context, are used in weddings. That's the kind of love we should have, the commitment we make in marriage. An amazing commitment, though, from this young Moabite woman to her Jewish mother-in-law. And I believe it's a commitment that can only be explained by Ruth's faith in Naomi's God. Orpah, go home and return to your gods. 
Ruth says, no, I'm not returning to my gods or my family. I'm staying with you because you are going to, wherever you're at, I'm at. And your God, he's my God. I believe Ruth had come to know Yahweh as the only true and living God and was a true worshiper, a believer in the God of Israel who would one day send a Savior. Can't necessarily prove that, but that's what I believe. You can do with it what you want to. You see, because of our hope in Jesus, we can be this kind of friend or family member or brother or sister or husband or wife. We can love one another as Ruth loves, loved Naomi. Well, the conversation was over. Verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them, verse 19, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Do not call me Naomi, pleasant, sweet. Call me Mara, bitter. I went away full, verse 21, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I'm back, but I'm changing my name to Mara. I'm no longer sweet pleasant. My name is bitter. I was starving when I left. Remember there was a famine? I was physically starving when I left here, but I was full because I had a husband and two sons. I've got plenty to eat now. There's bread back in the house of bread. But I've lost my husband and my boys and I'm all alone. I've got a committed daughter-in-law, but we're both in the same boat. A widowed and hopeless boat. Oh, she's young, she could remarry, but she's a Moabite. And nobody around here in Bethlehem is going to want to marry her. The despair of darkness expressed yet again, and yet the recognition that her God was in control of all of her calamity. Now you say, I'm not sure that's a good thing what she says about God. Well, yes and no. Look again at what she says about God. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, verse 20, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You know, Job talked that same way, didn't he? Job made the statement, shall we receive good from the Lord and not adversity? Another place, Job would say, though he slay me, I will yet praise him. Job and female Job, Naomi, understood one thing. God is God. And he's in control. Some of our theologies don't sync with Scripture because we say, you know, 
Why does she blame God for all those bad things? I mean, a good God doesn't allow and even cause bad things to happen to us. And yet in her acknowledgement that God had afflicted her, that God, the Almighty, had brought calamity on her, even through her pain, somehow she's expressing faith, is she not? Let me just tell you about how it is when you're in a despairing place. It matters how you think about God. And while it's not an easy thing to say that God is sovereign and in control of your pain, it's a better thing than saying nobody's in control of your pain. It's a better thing than in that moment having, in your, based on your own theology, saying, my God is not in control of this. Because you see, if he's not in control of this, he can't do anything about this. Are you with me? It's not a comfortable truth that Naomi states here, but it's a true truth truth. It's the real truth. And somehow as she through pain, she's, she's saying my name is bitter. This is awful. I'm empty and God's emptied me. God's put me in this place. God has caused the calamity and, and allowed the, at least allowed the calamity to come into my life that's brought me to this point. But here's the thing. Her God has allowed it to come. Her God is still God and in control. As long as my God, as long as your God is still God and in control of your pain, there is still hope in your pain. If our God is not in control of our despair, our, our, our hurt, our, our difficulties, our trials, then, then let me just ask you, to whom do you go? If blind chance and fate is all that controls the circumstances of your life, then why pray? You know, you know what we confess every time we cry out to God when we're in trouble or hurting? We confess he's the boss. We're believing in that moment that he's in control, and we're asking him, since you're God, do something. Naomi's hurting, but she knows she's in the hands of her God who is almighty, as she says there, and in control. And he is good. Though she can't feel it, ever been there? Some of you are there right now. I know you're out there. We talked. He's good even when we are struggling to believe it. And I believe that's exactly where she was. But though Naomi and Ruth don't realize it at the moment, the last verse of the chapter holds another ray of light, of hope. One that's going to begin to shine brighter in chapter 2, and you'll just have to wait till then to see it. Verse 22, 
ends the chapter. And it says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And here is the ray of hope. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Mm. Wow. You get it, right? No? <laughs> what in the world's barley harvest got to do with hope? The light of hope is shining in the barley harvest of all things for Naomi and Ruth. God had a plan to provide for Naomi and Ruth. Not just barley, but something far greater. He was going to restore all that God had emptied her of. He was going to make her full once again. God had a plan to provide for Naomi and Ruth. And friend... He has a plan to provide for you. I don't know what that plan is. I don't know when that plan is going to come. It had been, by the way, 10 years since they left Bethlehem and went to Moab. 10 years passed before they came back. 10 years of nothing but one disaster after another. He's got a plan to provide for you, to restore your hope. Your peace, your joy. These are the gifts of Advent, all with His love given to us in Jesus. You see, God sovereignly shines the light of hope in His faithful love while we're in the midst of the darkness of despair. You're going to have to trust me for now. Or go home and read ahead. But next week, we'll see that this barley harvest was the occasion for redemption for Naomi and Ruth. You're going to see something happen in a barley field that you've, I mean, we, I, who's ever even seen a barley field? Anybody? A couple of you that hunt. It's called a food plot um, for deer. Um, we've seen that maybe. But in a barley field, we're going to see a love story begin to unfold. And that love story will end in an unlikely marriage that will ensure that one day, about a thousand years later, the first Christmas happens. Because of love in a barley field, Jesus will be born as the Savior of the world. A, th a thousand years before Christmas, God was working in the history of one widow's despair to establish the family tree through which he would send the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Did you know Jesus is in every single book of the Bible? He's there. The whole book is about him. And the book of Ruth is a picture of the gospel. It's the great, glorious, beautiful gospel. God's epic tale, David Platt says, of redemption. Because here's the reality. We find ourselves in the middle of this story. We are Elimelech. We've wandered from our God into the land of idolatry. We're Ruth, born into a land of idolatry and immorality, children of disobedience, objects of the wrath of God, deserving nothing but the judgment of God. This is where we find ourselves. And the picture we have in the book of Ruth is a picture we have all over Scripture of a God who is pursuing after his people in their sin and even using their sin. He's using Elimelech's sin here to set the stage for a demonstration of his grace on the grand scheme of human history. This is the great gospel of our God. God takes our sin. 
He nails it to his son on the cross. And there sets the stage for the grandest picture of his glory to all the nations, including Moab. Don't miss that, by the way. You know who, you know who God wants to save? The worst of the worst. He wants to save Moabites. And whatever Moabites you know, he wants to save them. Whatever Moabite you are today, however much of a Moabite you've been in the past, God's grace is extended to you. His mercy will overcome our sorrow, just like it did Naomi's. Naomi had experienced great, great loss. We in this room will experience great loss. Some of us have. Some of us are. But here's the deal. It may not be immediately recognized. It may take a long time. It may take many days of patient waiting. It may take years. But know this. When God seems far from you, you can know he will show himself faithful to you. It's guaranteed. He's guaranteed it through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. He will eternally show you, show himself faithful to you. Because he lives, there is hope. It may be hope delayed. It may be hope that you don't think will ever be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled. For some in this life, for some next month, for some next year, some five years from now, some maybe never in this life. But if you trust Jesus in eternity, all of the pain of this life will be erased. That, you'll be in a place where you're looking into the face of Jesus. There'll be no sun there. The Son of God will be our light. And in that place, there'll be no weeping. There'll be no tears. There'll be no, uh, any more disappointment or pain. And we'll be satisfied. And we'll be healed of all the pain of this life. And enjoy something we've never enjoyed. We'll, 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 we'll enjoy peace and joy like we have never known. Our hope... Our faith will become sight. All because of the love of Jesus. William Cowper wrote a hymn a long time ago. William Cowper's story is an interesting one. He found Christ in an insane asylum. He suffered deep, deep, dark depression. He would continue to struggle with it his whole life. But he found a Bible that somebody left in the insane asylum. Jim, I think it was before the days of the Gideons, but here's a Gideon testimony. He found a Bible and he began to read it. And as he began to read, his mind began to clear. God's word began to illumine his heart. He began to understand and see how all this life that was so dark for him worked. He understood his own sin and the holiness of God. He understand, understood that God alone had provided a way of salvation by sending his son to be his substitute. And, and there in the insane asylum, he came to know Jesus through simply reading the word of God. And he penned this hymn. God moves in mysterious ways. Listen to the lyrics. 
God moves in mysterious ways. Think about the book of Ruth. God moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. And we do that, don't we? We're real good at figuring out how messed up God is and what he's bringing our way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. God sovereignly shines the light of hope and His faithful love while we're in the midst of the darkness of despair. You see, if God could work in the middle of Naomi's tragedy and pain and darkness to give her hope and ultimately redemption, then He can work in your dark night of the soul today because a thousand years before Christmas... God was working in the history of one widow's despair to establish the family tree through which he would send the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Christ has come. He lived a perfect life in your place. He bore in his own body on the cross the punishment for all of your sins. And he died for every one of them. And on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death. So that today, You can be eternally freed and have eternal hope and peace and joy in Him all because of His everlasting love for you. And because He's coming again to take you to be with Him forever, you can have hope. You can have hope. That hope will be fulfilled. And just as certainly as He came the first time, hear me, He is coming again. We we were in a passage just recently, just maybe the last couple weeks, where we read in a passage, last Sunday, I believe, that the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. And the picture there in Philippians 4 is of Jesus standing just outside the door of time, knocking and ready to open the door and step through the threshold into history and take us home. He is close. Am I trying to predict when he's coming? No, but I'm just telling you, in light of eternity... Jesus is coming soon. And because he is, you can have hope. You can have hope. The light of hope in the darkness of despair. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Ruth. And what we've been able to learn about you through it thus far. Pray, Lord, you'd walk us through the rest of it this month. and Lord, just show us the beauty of Christ. I thank you that a thousand years before Christmas you were at work just as you were before time began to make sure Christmas happened 
And we had a Savior whose name is Jesus. Thank you, Father, that in the same way, in the darkness of our lives, you're at work. We may not see it. We may not feel it. We may be right now struggling hard to believe it. But it doesn't change the fact. Oh, God, help us. Even in and through our pain. To trust you. Even if that means just acknowledging that you're the God who's in control of it all. And that though you don't, we don't necessarily feel the love of our Father, we have seen through Christ the proof of our Father's love in the giving of His Son. And your word tells us that nothing, not this, not the next pain, not the next loss, not the next trial, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for this truth and this encouragement today. And God, I pray now as we sing that if there's any in the room who does, don't know you, that today would be the day they come to you. Your gospel's been made plain. May they run to you as their redeemer, as their only hope. God, that's where we are if we know you today. We are just as desperate today for your grace as we've ever been. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from your grace, we are helpless. Without your mercy, we are hopeless. If Jesus hasn't paid it all, we have nothing to, with which to pay and are bankrupt before you. Oh, God, we lean hard on Jesus today. And I pray anybody who doesn't know you today would do the same. We ask it in Christ's name and for his glory's sake. Amen. Let's stand together and worship in song.
God's people said. Amen and amen. Thank you, Trains Juliana.